You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. So we're just going to go through a little bit of a background about ourselves first, but um, we're going to talk to you today about a project which we were winners of the City of Sydney Alternative Housing Ideas Competition for, um, which is a project for sort of um, re-looking at private rental housing. And we're going to talk you through, I guess, um, our particular project, which is a cooperative rental housing model. So this keys in quite a bit. Why is it doing that? This keys in quite a bit with the work that Tash has been looking at it, um, new forms of domesticity and, and sort of living more complexly um, in urban environments. So her work looking at Sprayfeld and a range of other projects in particular. So a number of projects that I've been involved with recently, just for a bit of my background. So I'm, I have a background both in architecture and planning and sort of work at the intersection of those two. So I was involved in Nightingale Village along with Mark Jakes in setting up some of the original uh, urban design framework that would guide the individual buildings and also calibrating the sort of public realm that would interface between the different buildings by, at the time, seven different architects and now six different architects across that village. Um, so that was really a project about um, enabling and supporting the architects to both have individual ideas within a framework that ensured consistency. The Central Melbourne Design Guide has been a major project of mine for the last three years, which was rewriting the urban design controls for Central Melbourne. So really interested in that relationship between urban rules and the sort of architectural outcomes which result in the city. And then just last week, I've been um, working in Perth um, with Design WA on the rewriting of their um, not missing middle, we'll call it their misguided middle. They produced 23,000 um, group homes, which is sort of three units on a plot, which you can see here. So that entire neighbourhood has been built in 10 years, basically as a direct um, translation, a kind of sausage factory of implementing the planning control. So I've been there with a number of uh, four architects from Sydney working on how we might be able to rewrite the controls there. So very much this relationship between precinct design and thinking about urban rules. Okay. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Alexis. Um, I have a slightly different uh, way into this topic than both Andy and Kath. I uh, have lived overseas for quite a number of years, um, mostly in Switzerland, which you'll see is quite relevant to our project, uh, and sort of have been more about uh, dealing with these, these issues of housing in, in a global context and then trying to think about how, what lessons you can bring back to Australia to deal with the particular situation we have here. Um, so these are just, I guess, a few indicative projects of, um, that I've worked on, some ongoing, some in the past, but I spent a number of years at Urban Think Tank, which is a social design practice based in Zurich, but doing projects all around the world, and Empower Shack was one of those projects. Um, it's in a township called Kailicha in, in Cape Town, um, but I think the interesting thing about that is that it was not just a, an architecture project, it was trying to think about how you can use... Uh, housing project in, in informal settlement um, initiative to actually change the kind of system of how property uh, is dealt with in that context and also um, employment opportunities and the kind of uh, local economy as well. Um, I've also done some research uh, in London, which is actually my first interaction with the city design program, um, which started looking at cooperative housing in particular, but, but expanded to look more at um, emerging housing models like uh, co-living and build to rent and how things like technology, uh, changing economic and social conditions are all um, colliding to actually change um, uh, how we think about housing and, and uh, push kind of experimentation with different housing models. Uh, and the last project there is, is an ongoing one. It's um, one that's specifically looking at some of the challenges of trying to scale up cooperative housing in Zurich um, and rethinking uh, a cooperative housing project um, at a neighbourhood scale and how you can actually start to think about uh, buildings in clusters and expand program more widely. Um, but that's still going and uh, hopefully there'll be a bit more. Um, I could talk about that in the future. So, Hi, I'm Catherine Sunderman. I'm an Associate Director at MGS Architects and I have a background both in architecture and planning, similar to Andy. And my focus is really looking at um, how we can create these really diverse, rich, lively, livable precincts. And so whether that's looking at um, in Fitzroy Gasworks, that's a new residential neighbourhood in Fitzroy, so that's going to have a thousand dwellings, um, but also a vertical school and parks and create a space for creative 
um, workplaces or whether it's in Ballarat, we're looking at how they can take what's a historic city and really try and um, bring life back into the centre of the city and using the creative industries as a bit of a conduit for that. And then finally, I do a lot of work with universities. So universities are interesting because they used to really be this kind of citadel where you just went there and you went to study and then you went home again. But now if you've been to Monash Clayton or Monash Caulfield recently, it's really become much more of a city. So it's how do you really get that right mix? And so these ideas become interesting in terms of I guess there's two lenses. There's um, diverse types of housing and then there's the kind of right mix of other uses such as creative industries and things like that and that will come through in our presentation. And so to set the context, especially for our, our five guests from London, um, in Australia we um, have been very good at delivering this type of housing for people on very high incomes. So you can choose between market housing to rent or market housing to buy, but um, if you don't have a high income, you might struggle to find something appropriate. At the other end of the spectrum, we have about 4% public housing, so quite small compared to on global standards um, and something that hasn't been delivered um, recently at all. But what we're seeing um, coming up and emerging in Australia, in, in Melbourne in particular, which is quite interesting, is a real diversity of types of housing. And so we're really interested in how we don't just focus on those with very high incomes, but how we can really target housing to different housing groups and that there's different types of models that work well for different groups over others. And so um, most of you in this room would have heard of Nightingale, but also looking at international examples of Baugrouper and um, the cooperatives that you see in Zurich. And so in terms of Australia, we um, have this real obsession with the detached house and with home ownership. And it's really a system that's worked really well until quite recently. So, you know, we all dream to have this, um, this house and to own our own land, but obviously that's just not working anymore. Um, and you start to see that in these statistics. So actually 92% of renters do still want to own their own home but 50% of young people never own their own home. And that would be fine if we were like Zurich where 90% of people rent and actually the quality of renting is really good. But if you go to the next slide, in Australia, just the, the rental experience is completely broken. Um, could you put your hand up if you rent in Melbourne? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, over 50% and it's just completely, you'd have no tenure security. The quality of what's available is terrible. But, but most importantly, you can't even afford it. So we were really looking at what are the models that we can learn from internationally to try and um, do something with this in Australia. Uh, and that leads us to Zurich. Um, and I think the thing that I think all of us were particularly interested in, do you want to maybe, uh, in Zurich, um, is there's a couple of reasons that Zurich's interesting. One is that it's a city of renters, as Catherine alluded to. Um, less than 10% of people in Zurich actually rent, which you see here, although I don't know how legible it is. Um, so, I mean, you can see Australia up here has, has always sort of hovered around the 60 to 70% home ownership rate. Um, Zurich, not Switzerland, but Zurich has never really gone above 10%. Um, so the entire system of, of housing in Zurich um, has been built around the needs of renters um, and I guess also the, um, the interests of more institutional landlords that uh, create the kind of housing that renters um, use in, in Zurich. Um, but the thing that is really interesting, I think, for Australians and was certainly very interesting to me living there is how important cooperative housing is in Zurich. Um, you see here, these are a selection of um, annual reports from one of the largest cooperatives in Zurich. but. Um, 20% of the housing stock in, in Zurich at the moment is actually run by cooperatives, which are, so it's run on a non-profit basis um, with uh, different forms of rent control, very high quality builds, um, and is really a great place for people to live in Zurich if you can get in. Um, so there's this long history of, of cooperatives in Zurich, but then there's also this much more recent history um, that, that has emerged out of a, a, a more kind of conflicted uh, era in Zurich's history um, in the 80s and 90s um, connected to the squatting scene and some of the kind of social experimentation that happened during that time 
And these two different strands, the, the sort of historical um, social oriented cooperative housing development uh, and this more experimental um, kind of politicized communities have come together and, and started to produce some really interesting projects. Um, I think that the, our visitors from RCA might have already seen some of these, so I won't spend too long on them, but just a couple of indicative projects. One is the Calcbright Cooperative. Um, it's quite interesting because it it's built on top of a functioning tram depot um, as, a, as a joint venture. Um, and it's created, uh, it's, it has a really interesting um, mix of, of programs. It's really a microcosm of the, of the entire city. They essentially built a new block so you have um, commercial uses at ground floor, you have raised public spaces that are not just for residents, um, great quality apartments and a lot of community uh, amenity as well. Um, you see the same kind of cooperative development happening at a much larger precinct scale. So this is Meros Vonen, which was actually a, a demonstration project to mark 100 years of cooperative housing in, in Zurich. It's 13 different buildings all built at the same time by eight different architects. Uh, and again, you see some really interesting mixed uses at ground level. Almost all of the ground level is, is not residential, which is quite rare in Australian context. Um, you see a really strong sense of community that's um, emerged because of the shared um, spaces that really bring people together. And you start to see also um, some experimentation, the actual uh, living um, design of the apartments that people live in as well, like cluster apartments, which I think Tasha will... Um, speak more on tonight. But cooperative housing is also not just a, an architectural um, model or something that, that has to involve new development. There are cooperatives that exist like Wagano in Zurich that actually just adapt existing properties as well. So you see um, a network throughout the city that they have. Um, so it's, it's actually it also a financial model that can be used to convert speculative housing into something that's more um, socially sustainable. And here are just a few examples. Um, again, I mean, these are more in inner Zurich, but the same thing is happening on, on the outskirts of the city as well. Uh, and this is I something I always say is a bit painful for me because um, this, this is what you see is the result of uh, cooperative housing in Zurich is that you get these um, amazing like 90 square meter apartments uh, that cost the same as my 40 square meter apartment I had in Zurich, uh, even though it was a five minute walk away. So um, it's something that the, the, the government in Zurich is really trying to um, create incentives to, for the cooperative sector to expand. Um, Zurich is certainly not immune to some of the pressures that we find in Australia, um, but cooperatives have been the most successful way to deal with those. And I think just to add, um, Andy and I visited Zurich a couple of years ago and we were just blown away with the quality of the development that we saw. So, yeah, they, they have a lot of um, design competitions. So it's incredible to see these complete pieces of city that are brand new and yet have that kind of vibrancy that you might get in an existing part of the city. And so um, we, about a year ago, accosted Andy... Uh, Sorry, Andy and I accosted Alexis after he gave a presentation about Zurich cooperatives and said, hey, let's um, enter this competition together. So the city of Sydney um, has... He, had he was jet-lagged and bamboozled and said yes. <laughs> the Grimshaw talk run by Tava. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so to, to the city of Sydney's credit, they had this incredible competition. So they were saying, look, we have this target for 70... 7% affordable housing in the city of Sydney, but the state government keeps selling our public housing and so we're really struggling to meet the target. And what can we do about it? And so they had this completely open international competition and they were inviting um, submissions, but they didn't want it just to be about design because I think a lot of architects think, oh, I can come up with some really um, innovative way that we can shape these spaces and somehow it will be magically more affordable. But um, we and the City of Sydney recognised that you needed to also look at the financial models and you also needed to look at the planning context and you needed to make sure that you were addressing more than one of these fields rather than just looking at design. So we put together this submission um, to try and bring the Zurich... It was a simple idea, just how do we bring Zurich cooperatives to Sydney? And so, of course, there's been a lot of um, unravelling of that and trying to work out how that actually works. 
but um, we were selected as one of seven finalists and we spent about six months um, going up to Sydney every six weeks and workshopping with the other finalists. So we've really learned a lot through that process. One of the great things that we set up was a housing finance workshop. So we're able to meet with ANZ, we're able to meet with Bank Australia and various super funds and also NIFIC, who are the national body that gives out grants for affordable housing and loans. It was 17 different financiers and 70 attendees came to this event and it really transformed the way in which the City of Sydney had been thinking about the competition because suddenly they realised the money was in the room and it was interested. So that was really a kind of turning point mm. in this project for us. Yes. And so um, we've really developed up this model of what we're calling the third way. And so the name comes from trying to be a third way between rental and ownership. So it is a rental model, but you do have much more of that buy-in that you might get from owning a place in that you can actually um, be involved in how the community operates and be there for the long term. And so there's four elements, which I can't quite read on the slide, but essentially the third way acts as the developer and the operator. So I think that's the difference that in Australia, you've got developers that just build something and then they're gone. And so they're not there to see if it's going to be sustainable over time or high quality over time or build community over time. And so we're really interested in how we can almost build a not-for-profit build to rent and so a key element of our model is to take out a long-term lease on public land and then um, build this kind of development based on social impact investment. And then the cooperative forms and um, the residents are part of the model. And finally, the residents have a say in how it operates. But I think a key element is that to move into this development, you pay um, a quite substantial deposit. So, I mean... $20,000 or something like that, and then you can live there as long as you want on a below market rent. So the five key elements are that it's at cost. This is a non-profit um, organisation. And so we just look at the costs involved with the, paying the ground lease, um, developing the project and looking after its maintenance over time. And then we average that out over a 30 year period and then divide it up per apartment and that's how much rent you pay. And so what we're looking at is actually 30% below market rental. You have flexible leases and you can move within the model as your needs change. So, you know, you might be that you have a kid that grows up and wants to get their own studio apartment down the hallway and then you can move into a smaller apartment. So you have that ability to really um, get the housing that's suitable for your needs at that point in your life stage. Um, looking at borrowing from Zurich in terms of the design excellence standards, so having um, architectural competitions to make sure that you get that design innovation in terms of how that's delivered and really delivering things that the market currently doesn't deliver. We're looking at having resident self-governance so you do have participation in community life. So one thing that they have in Zurich is that, say, you might get a um, amount each year as a new, you're part of the garden committee and you can choose what that money gets spent on. So you might say, this year we want a playground and next year we want a vegetable garden, but you really get that involvement. And then finally, it's the curated mix of uses. So rather than all being residential, we're really trying to learn from those models where they have a mix of uses and it creates a real kind of vibrancy. And also those non-residential uses cross-subsidise the rental, so it actually makes it more affordable. And the real target market is people on moderate incomes. So a moderate income is, is a single person earning up to $60,000 or a, a family earning up to $130,000. So although... Um, these sound like everyday people, which they are, these people are really struggling to live in a place like Sydney. And so we're really looking at um, how they can get the housing they need. And so some examples are aged care workers or even creatives um, in the early part of their career or baristas or things like that. If you don't have these people, then um, your city doesn't function anymore. Those figures, The city of Sydney. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So Andy will take you through more of the nuts and bolts of the financial model um, that we've started to set up and the design of a bit of a prototype project we've been working on in Sydney. So a real key to the affordability that comes out of this project that's important to understand is that the land is decoupled from the building. 
So you're paying a lease long-term on that land component, but you're not exposing the future residents to the cost of that land. So by paying off that uh, mortgage on the development cost over a really long period of time, you can actually reduce the heat of the market immediately on the residents. So that's one of the really key ideas that comes behind this project. In order to do that at the moment, Kath mentioned about the member equity. We're sort of conceptualising this as a sort of commitment fee of sorts. It's significantly less than a deposit that you might have to buy a property, but with that uh, refundable uh, fee, you, you sort of are providing a small amount of equity in the development. We then have 25% impact investors. So we're, we're looking at a number of options, including refundable grants, um, foundations who are happy to provide um, unsecured uh, equity, and then senior debt at 65% of the mix. So this is really important because um, the senior debt component, the kind of rates that we're looking at um, for a prototype might be quite different to what we look at long-term. So when we talk to ANZ about this model, they say, uh, sounds terrifying, come back to us in a few years when you've got a built project. So what do you do next? So this, this, the original project or a kind of prototype project will probably be a bit more exotic in its financing and subsequent projects will have a, a simplified model once um, banks are perhaps more f familiar with this model. Our concept of what is risky is very different to what the banks perceive to be risky. But how this plays out in terms of affordability, and again, I can't really see, that 30% figure on a studio apartment uh, of $311 a week 466 for a one better or 618 per week for a two better. And if we see that play out. So we should just add time, th these figures are based on a pilot um, project site in, in the city of Sydney. Yeah. And so these figures essentially, um, it's both about whether, and that might sound high to Melbourne people in terms of the cost of rent, but Sydney's a slightly different market, as Natasha will very well know. Um, so what we see is in year one of operation, with the building being up and running, we're at 30%. But Critically, because of this non-profit rental model, we can cap the rental increase per annum over a period of time. So this is essentially taking, if you're familiar with rent stabilisation in the US context or, or similar sort of rent protection laws in Europe, we're modelling a kind of rent protection model within this. So after 10 years, you're actually getting somewhere closer to 42%. Is that the figure after 10 years? It's not written on there, is it? Um, but 40%. So you're seeing an increase in affordability over time that occurs from not having to increase the sort of um, income stream for the de developer over time. But so just to add one thing, we are targeting uh, moderate incomes at the beginning, but as you see, because you get this increasing discount over time, you can start to bring in lower incomes over time as well. And so it's almost a trade-off to get the project off the ground that maybe you have a narrower market, but then you can start to expand. So in terms of the mix of uses, as Kath has mentioned a few times, this concept of an ecology of uses. So our current model of building mixed-use development through a develop and dispose mentality, and this is shifting in Melbourne. I know, you know, Milieu, Mervac, and a range of other people within Melbourne are exploring build-to-rent, which allows a whole range of possibilities in terms of a mix of uses that aren't possible if you're developing and selling in year three and you're out. Um, you have an ongoing obligation to kind of make sure that that ground plane really works so that people want to live there. Um, but for us, we were really interested in the cross-subsidy component that comes with this model. So if you sell the retail tenancies in year one, you get a, a sugar hit, you know, you get quick money, but that has absolutely no bearing on the affordability in year six or year seven. So we're really interested in this idea of by holding these assets and being able to sort of manage them over the life of the project, we can see that affordability playing into the cost of the residential apartments. So in this context, we've got 23% non-residential uses. And I think we've got childcare, a small um, a sort of guest house. We've got some retail tenancies and food and drink, et cetera, um, and, and co-working facilities but that actually contributes 52% of the income. So we're cross-subsidising the cost of the residents' um, rent, which is quite significant in making this project work. What it does mean is that this, this model that we're talking about, a lot of the affordability gains are contextual. If we buy a site in, I don't know, reservoir that's a kilometre from the train station, that ain't going to work. So we need to be in really urban sites where that ecology of uses is, is viable. So in terms of the prototype scheme, um, and we can't really talk about where it is because that's highly political at the moment. Uh, we have to be a bit care careful of that, but this is an inner urban site around about 150 metres walk from a train station in an area undergoing um, fairly significant investment. Um, Tasha's probably already guessed where it is, but maybe not. Um, 
So what we were able to do is actually create a sort of ensemble of buildings around a courtyard. And that was really important to us because we're really keen to avoid this kind of monoculture of architecture. We want to have a precinct that feels like the extension of the neighbourhood. So these are terraces by different people over many years. You have this kind of accretive urbanism where you get a really great sense of diversity. We wanted to make sure that our complex wasn't this one big branded complex. We wanted it to feel like a real village. And if we cut through, we can start to see how that works on the ground plane. So taking, preserving an existing mural, um, creating a laneway through the site that provides public access to the centre, we're able to start to separate the different functions and potentially design authors as well. So we have a co-working facility, front of house, the cooperative's management office and guest suite here, separate from the residential community here, separate from this residential community here. So scaling that community down is a real challenge that the RCA students will have on a tower site this week. That question of how do you manage a community where the lobby is shared by 400 people versus being shared with 30 people or something of the sort. So that was a really important concept for us. But another thing you can see here is that thankfully due to Sydney's um, pretty fantastic planning controls, we get a free courtyard because we have to have the apartments 18 metres apart from one another if they're five storeys. That means we can actually drop the courtyard into a semi-basement level and pick up additional uses in the basement that connect onto this beautiful north-facing landscape courtyard. So this would not be possible in most areas of Melbourne. What also was possible though, and I think this ties probably most closely to what the RCA students will be looking at this week, is that we don't have to go to the real estate agent and ask whether people need Caesar Stone bench tops. We don't have the same set of restrictions that an apartment for sale faces. So we can start to explore typologies that are actually more responsive to people's needs. So one of the things that um, is kind of a default in apartment design is the open plan. Is the open plan suitable for complex households? Is it suitable for a share house? Can you find your own space to escape or not? So we're really interested in how this apartment module, which we've conceived of, um, can start to separate living areas while still having a sense of lengthening of the space um, and this flexibility with how these rooms are operated. So this could easily be a sort of study, uh, an extension of the, of the sort of living area for a couple, or it could be two couples living there and sharing. There's a range of different household configurations that can exist within this drawing, but also this module, if you can imagine it mirrored, you could start to pop that one out into the next apartment and that becomes a three better. And equally, this one could become a really generous one better. So there's these options to do things that the market is not delivering. The other one that I'm particularly excited about is an apartment that um, Kath and I actually stayed in by coincidence called International Lodge by Harry Seidler in Elizabeth Bay, which is a, a building full of one bedroom apartments and, um, and studios, which are really fantastic. And I sat on a rainy day on the bed in there redrawing that apartment about 15 different times, uh, not knowing that that would ever be of use, but it turned out it was. Um, and we were able to take this kind of logic of the studio and think about, well, how could a studio actually be a really generous, high quality space that perhaps even a couple could live in? So we thought about this idea of lengthening the space. So the distance between the bed and the kitchen seemed to be greater within a relatively small um, 42 square meter studio. We started to look at how this kind of joinery unit could be um, designed in such a way that we could pick up storage within the bench seats. The bed sits on a platform 600 mil above, so you get a sense of height within the, the space. I might also add these drawings were all done by Elliot Dunton, who's sitting over here. He was a fantastic contributor to our competition entry. So this is the scheme as it appears. Um, you see a really simple, we've been calling it a kind of elegant scaffold for living. So it's literally just a framework within which we want the occupant's possessions to be the principal architectural device. So we're interested in how this frame over time can evolve um, and become something really rich that, that shows how these people are participating in the city. Um, but we're also thinking a lot about um, the performance of this building and working with Alexander Symes architects in Sydney to aspire to a passive house standard of construction, um, which is really exciting. Because this building, if it goes ahead, it's going to be there for 30 years in a very different climate. So how do our buildings respond to that future hostile climate context if we think about the kind of experience that we've had in, in Melbourne over, the, over this summer? So we see here the laneway separating the buildings with different authors. So we've got the building that will be by MGS Architects and myself. We have the building here by Panov Scott Architects and we haven't really decided what to do with this one, but we'll work that out soon. But the idea being that there will be three authors that will contribute to an ensemble within the project so that you really get that sense of a of place that you feel welcome in. If you think of an environment, um, there are parts of Docklands where there are four towers by the same author. You sort of hesitate when you walk in there and think, is this a resort? Can I come here? Is this street public? As soon 
soon as you walk between different buildings by different authors, that's a much more familiar conception of what public realm is. So we're really interested in making sure we maintain that quality. And this is the dark, gloomy basement, which people think of when I say that we're dropping into the basement. So this is north. We've shaped the hotel here to maintain really great solar access. We've got a childcare facility and we've got a car park area, which has got a 3.2 metre ceiling height that's designed to adapt and be able to use for a range of things. So every time you park your car in there and move the timber sliding doors onto the courtyard, you'll just be thinking how many different ways I could use this space. So, you know, Byron could do a great gig there tomorrow night. It'd be excellent. Um, or there could be a range of ways in which we could repurpose that. So we're sort of jumping now, I guess, from the very specific um, response to that site to the how we're thinking about our model in, in a broader sense. And, and as I mentioned about Zurich and how you can apply the cooperative model to lots of different contexts, we're also thinking about not just that type of site that, we, that we're working with in Sydney at the moment, but also how you could actually create a, a kind of scalable model um, that is, starts to deal with all of the different types of contexts that you um, have to engage with to really reshape the housing market in Australia. Um, Part of that is, is trying to um, pick up on some of the uh, different uh, innovations that are happening in the prop tech space and how you kind of network different communities together across the city um, and then start to really uh, apply the cooperative model to different types of um, developments, whether it's uh, part of an urban renewal kind of new precinct, whether it's adaptive reuse of existing medium density development, or whether it's this kind of urban infill like we were just showing in that project. Sorry, and I should just add as, as well, one of the things that um, Zurich cooperatives don't do so well is um, probably some of the, the service design um, that you do see in, in newer models like co-living or built to rent. And um, you can argue about the economic kind of intent of those models, but they do suggest um, one element of how you can improve rental housing. And that's something that we also want to incorporate with our model is, is pick up on the good parts of those models, um, but maintain a more kind of social and community oriented approach otherwise. Maybe I'll just do this. Um, this is more of a teaser than anything. Um, the three of us plus Jana Perkovic, who was a recently departed editor of Assemble Papers, um, but he's, sorry, that makes alive. it sound like she's, she's not alive. She's in Copenhagen, but she's coming back. She's working for Space 10. She's the editor of Space 10 magazine in Copenhagen. So that's IKEA's amazing magazine. Um, but the four of us are putting on a, a, a small but hopefully interesting exhibition as part of Melbourne Design Week, um, which is looking at a range of uh, sort of housing innovation in Melbourne that's emerged over a number of years. So different models like uh, Nightingale, Assemble, Property Collectives um, that, that are actually have already built buildings or in the process of um, uh, developing built projects as well as a few other models that are more like us or kind of in the conceptual um, feasibility stage. But the idea is to really show, uh, show and kind of ask the question, why is this happening in Melbourne? What kind of conditions um, are Melbourne specific that are uh, kind of leading, leading these models to emerge organically rather than through um, government intervention. Because when we're in Sydney, people are, like talk to us in a really um, uh, admiring way, like, why is this happening in Melbourne? Why aren't we doing this in Sydney? Um, so we're trying to kind of get to this, the bottom of what's in the water here that's making this emerge. I think the other really key thing that we've observed from all of the analysis of comparable models around the world is that the government is always in there hiding somewhere. They're subsidising the land, they're subsidising the cost of debt, they're supporting these projects in some way or another, even things that are less visible, like in Berlin, they can access you know, green loans at a lower rate if they achieve a certain environmental standard. The government is entirely absent from the conversation about these types of housing in Melbourne. So we're really interested in understanding why in the absence of that, we still have models that are worth talking about. And I think that's something to reflect on the culture of this city and the fact that you were all turning up to events like this, which is not particularly common in other parts of Australia. Um, so we're really interested in sort of mining the intelligence that people within these models have built over a number of years, but also bringing government stakeholders into the room and um, you know, talking about what, what is the potential role for government in this? Why are they not involved? Should they be involved? And that's a really open-ended question that we're interested in exploring. I should just note, this is not on the Design Week website yet, but uh, it will be. So if you look for it and it's not there, it doesn't mean it's not happening, it's still happening. 
Thanks. Questions? Thank you. That was amazing. Totally inspiring seeing you guys take this on in all of its complexity because it's there's so many different angles of this that have to come together, these projects that have to come together, and it's totally inspiring. Um, um, Andy, you raised this really interesting question at one point about scale and the number of people that could be together. And I know that typically across the Bauer Grouper and even the cooperative projects in Switzerland, there's a number that gets banded around that's like 60 people. Once you get to a project that's larger than 60, um, it's difficult for groups to negotiate amongst themselves and to, to carry things off. Things just kind of seem to collapse. Is how are you dealing with that? And what are you, like, how, how have you been how are you responding to that? Yeah, I mean, it's something that we're slightly obsessed with in the concept of Dunbar's number, if anyone's kind of familiar with that, um, in terms of how many kind of strong uh, connections you can maintain within a community. Um, it's basically about the scale of effective democracy um, at which you can come together and be tolerant enough to make decisions. The number of 30 households is typically talked about in the Danish context and thinking about co-housing communities there, which is really where a lot of that notion of co-housing, which is distinct from this model, um, really emerged out of um, in the what, late 60s, early 70s, essentially. So for us, this building and this site makes it easy because the buildings are small. So we've got 45 apartments across two buildings. So immediately our scale um, is working. Um, when we come to larger sites, that's going to be more challenging. Um, but there are great prototypes. Um, one of my personal favourites is the Titgen Dormitory by Lundgaard Tramberg in Copenhagen. No one's going to be able to write that down, are they? Um, it's a student housing development, um, which is really fantastic in the Erstad, Erstund, how do I say? Erstad area, and it's kind of a donut that's broken into these series of smaller communities. So no more than um, six communities share one communal facility, um, and they're required to barter with their neighbours to use the kitchen or the games room or whatever that might be. And so a building that might have 120 residents in it is, is atomised into these series of smaller sub-communities. Another example which I'm actually quite fond of, which I can't see under this roof, is the Triptych building, which is just here. I don't know, does anyone know that building? Three? <laughs> um, what's kind of incredible about that building is that... Um, they were really interested in targeting a South Bank tower to own occupiers, which is somewhat unheard of. Um, and their idea was actually to stack the community into clusters of three levels. So your, your um, card that gives you access to the building gives you access to any three-storey stack within that development. You then have a shared common floor and a bit of a garden, and everyone has balcony access off that void. So that means, I think it's 15 occupants then share that one cell, and there's sort of, you know, 10 or 12 cells within that building. My current, our current landlord actually lived in there and I've seen, I've got incredible photos of the dinner parties that they would have in that community and the way in which that fostered community. So this is something that Woha also explores in Singapore, but I think that idea of planning cells within the community, so you start to conceive of the lift as the public street and the sub-circulation for that cell as, as semi-private. Sorry, I'll just add, also even in Zurich, I mean, Kalkpride, there's 200 and something residents and I know you've being like that they also structure it kind of vertically that they'll have a communal kitchen that's shared um, by a number of floors and they kind of separate the also kind of almost like a donut shape um, into different segments so sorry. I think there's multiple cores as well yeah yeah as well but I think what it's all indicating is that um, what really work what makes these projects work is that there's a logic of meaningful relationships that's built in spatially to the projects. There's a recognition that proximity alone isn't enough, that there's a, there needs to be built into the project a, a, an animating principle that brings people together. And, and I think the governance is also critical to that. So there's the spatial design. You can provide the cues. Um, I don't know if anyone spent much time in Lawson's Grove. Um, oh, well, I know you guys, I'll be taking you there on Wednesday night. Um, but you'll get to see how a space can leave um, opportunities for people to sort of populate a street edge and use the space and have a cigarette and answer the phone on their step. And these kinds of moments are really critical to enabling interaction. But governance is also important. So we're looking at this discretionary fund. And, and any developer could do this. They could just provide a fund into the body corporate and say, you decide how it's spent through a democratic process. Here are the ground rules. And this is something that we're equally really interested in. I think the other thing to talk about in terms of numbers is that I've been working on a few build-to-rent 
projects in Australia that are starting up and they won't touch it unless there's 200 um, dwellings in the development and there's something economically about that that stacks up and with our model if we're really looking at having that mix of uses often you do need to have a greater density for that to work and if we're wanting to see um, this kind of rollout at scale like I think I think there's one at one level you have the intentional community um, cooperative housing that already exists in Australia but it's only for a limited amount of people and so how can you make this accessible to more and so, yeah, it's an interesting kind of challenge of really trying to balance out those those two different elements. I think but also I, Nightingale Village is a pretty interesting example of that because you've got an existing permit that was inherited on that site that had, I don't know, let's say 200 apartments or something like that across a building by one architect with one design language with one core servicing a shitload of people. And the first step of um, the Nightingale team was to say, this is six buildings. So to break the site down into a collection of buildings, creating the muse in between, immediately the scale reduces to, I don't know, I think I've got 24 in my building that I'll be moving into. Um, what's the maximum? 42 in Sky House. Yeah, sure, which is a wider frontage. So that scale of the community really um, has been broken down and that was the principal intent of it. There's no economic benefit of having six different architects and six different buildings, um, but that was explicitly about community scale. But I think when you're talking about an animating principle, you're, you're, you mean more the kind of intention to live collectively no, in a non... In a no, I think it's, it's the relationship between the It's the spatial performance at multiple scales. It's the governance system that you're describing. And unless those two things are working together, um, for us, that's, that's what's making all of these projects work. And it's also the reason why we've been really critical of um, a lot of the, the co-living projects, the commercial co-living projects that are emerging because they completely outsource any of the resilience building capacity to negotiate difference that these new systems are demanding. And I think that's in a liberal democracy, that's the actual role of the city, that historically that has been the role of the city, is to negotiate difference at multiple scales. And so that's where in the MA City of Design, for example, we see the real benefit and the value of these projects. So we're a little bit sceptical about the co-living model. So Me agree too. that there's things to learn from yeah. and there's useful things to learn But I think from. one thing that we, we keep kind of re reiterating when we're saying we're trying to learn from Zurich is not yeah. just um, from some of the more kind of um, like the architect's favourites projects, yeah, 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 which sure. you tend to see pop up in a lot of publications, yeah. but also, I mean, the, the largest cooperative in Zurich is about 4,500 units. Yeah. Um, it's one of these ones that emerged in the 1920s. There's yeah. almost no spatial experimentation yeah, yeah. in the apartments, but people pay below market rent, stay as long as they want, have great yeah. quality uh, mm. buildings and love living there. So yeah. there's sort of, I think there's a diversity even within somewhere like Zurich that yeah. is, has lessons for us in Australia. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Do we want to maybe... Yeah, any other questions? <laughs> A quick one. Hi, um, I just have you done any ana analysis of Sydney, City of Sydney land, um, and where these could be applied on their current stock? Well, as part of the competition, they actually put forward three sites that could be explored, and so um, we've we've looked at each of those sites, and I think they already have their own database. That's an incredible database. And so one of the key elements of our model is that we do lease the land. And so we're looking to local governments, but also faith-based organisations. So I know that um, there are a lot of people that are trying to amass such databases of, of these yeah. sites. The City of Sydney is quite resistant to putting that database out, I think. But, but it, it's also... You've got it, don't you? <laughs> I don't, actually. Um, it's been flashed in front of me by Jesse McNichol, but not for me to take. But I think this idea is, is it's really important to understand that the model we're looking at, um, public land is a scarce resource that has a lot of demands over it. So we talk about housing, 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 but you know what? If you've got public land in Fisherman's Bend, maybe it's better for a park. So it's a question about the what's being contested in public land that um, we're sort of interested in as well. But we see this opportunity to establish the first cooperative on public land can generate a really reasonable return to the city of Sydney over a period of time. They maintain the asset value, so they can leverage that asset to borrow for other things over time. But it also allows the cooperative to get a foothold in a way that it can do other projects without public land being dependent upon. It's probably worth adding as well, where um, 
one of the other partners that we're working on this project with is actually completely focused on the governance side. Um, they're looking more at community land trusts. And I think part of that is, um, is how you can use th these kind of um, sites, not just for housing, but more like how, how you can make sure that they um, serve communities um, and, and stay in public hands. Has a really interesting role in Australia when we talk about community lands trusts. I mean, how many of you here have heard of community lands trusts? One at the back. <laughs> okay, and he's American. You all have, you? RCA City Design. You've heard of him. They've had CLT. nine hours sleep in sixty hours. We here, so that maybe that's. Um, but basically, it's a kind of it's a um, a trust that is managed over land to prevent speculation or to prevent you know traditional flipping and capital gains. Um, the key principle of a CLT is that there's three parties that essentially manage its governance and they all have veto power against each other. So one might be institutional and public stakeholders, one might be the building or precinct community stakeholders and the other one might be the broader community. So the power of this in Australia, where our governments love to flog off land to make a sugar hit and make the budget look good for the next year, um, is that we're kind of, a CLT can out-public the public. And this is what we kind of love. So if the CLT is formed on a piece of City of Sydney land, Clover gets elected out next year, unlikely, I hope. Um, and let's say that someone else, um, you know, wants to sell that land and, and pay for something, I don't know what. The CLT can outvote that desire to sell off the land really easily, two thirds to one third, mm -hmm. because the, the interest groups of those three thirds are always in, in an important tension with one another, which enables the land to maintain mm -hmm. in the interests of the city. So, but it's a really interesting question, isn't it? The question of who's got the legitimacy to make a claim to the use of public land or, you know, a public asset like that. And I think that what it, the demand that it makes on anyone making a claim over that is the argument that we're making back to the city in terms of public benefit. So I think for me that makes these projects incredibly interesting, right? Because it, it, for them to go forward and if, if there's a whole lot of them that are developing, the idea of, well, in each instance, you have to be making a claim for public benefit that's beyond just the, the user of the site. It has to be to a much broader com part of the city, right? Alexis is going to be doing that, but he's shaking his head at me. Um, so as a key part of our next step of our project, we'll be developing the indicators to, to, measure, to measure public benefit. So it's, it's something where, um, and we, we, you know, Alexis has a background in federal politics. Um, I work in, in government currently for the next two weeks. Um, and so this, this kind of situation is, we're deeply interested in the question of public policy and who has access to land. And so that the kind of measurement of indicators around impact is critical to us and we will ingrain that in this project. But equally I'll note, Nightingale are doing this as well. So Nightingale, um, in terms of the public benefit offer, have been working with um, Jasmine Palmer and uh, Libby Porter and others who are doing a research piece at the moment, sort of looking at the sort of benefits over time yeah, yeah. to residents. Resilient Melbourne is also engaged with Urban Coop yeah. on the Nightingale project and a couple of other projects, I think also assembles Macaulay Road, if I'm right, and a couple of others. So they're really, they're really interested from a public perspective, Resilient Melbourne being funded by the City of Melbourne, they're really interested in how we can measure the performance of these developments and understand yeah. what the benefits might yeah. be, because it's hard at the moment. Yeah, because, but I think that it starts to open up a condition for development that we were really good at in the middle of the 20th century, where we were really optimistic about the future, because change meant a better future, and we've lost our way in terms of how we argue for a better city on the occasion of development. And I think what the demand of any, the, the claiming of public land now is that you've got to make these arguments about public benefit, which gives us the opportunity to sell to a broader public the fact that change is good. Like that's the really, that to me is the really exciting thing about it. But I think in a way, I mean, we, we're going to kind of um, try to engage with this in, in the exhibition is that perhaps what's happened is that some of that intent has just moved more into the, not the private sector necessarily, but like the community sector and that is maybe where the, the real innovation is happening now. Um, um, when adopting, uh, adapting the Zurich model to Australia, what was sort of the main challenges you had to overcome or couldn't overcome uh, when adapting it to the local context? Uh, I think finance is the, the toughest part. I mean, we didn't really go into much detail um, about that in this, in this uh, presentation. But there's, when you have 100 years of history of doing this, you also have this entire um, kind of financing framework that builds up over time to make it easier to do this. Um, you have banks that are more familiar with these models and so they're more willing to lend. Um, 
you also just have an economy in, in most countries in Europe at the moment where interest rates are negative. And so if you're an investor and you can get even 1% or 2% return, you're happy if it's stable. Um, whereas in Australia, social impact investors want 15% return. Um, so that, that's the biggest challenge, I'd say. I think another also, layer super is... Funds, I was gonna say. Yeah, just, I was just going to say super funds are such a critical player. People talk about patient capital and pension funds and they're so important. And in Australia, um, that they just aren't a player in this at all. So in terms of the scale of investment required to interest them, it has to look like an asset class. It needs to be hundreds and hundreds of, of, of apartments. And a really good example, someone from... Um, a superannuation fund, I won't use names, was sort of saying to me, look, we've got 50 people managing a fund of billions and billions of dollars. If they, if they have a complex investment that requires three weeks of their time, that's three weeks of hospitality workers who aren't earning a sufficient return on their investment to compensate for their low wage. So it's been really interesting learning very quickly that super funds are not um, well-tuned to the type of model we're looking at. I would say another layer is the cultural element. And this is something that no one in this team or perhaps many people in this room would think of. Um, but we've presented this model to different groups. And I would say it's a bit of a generational thing. But I'll present this model and say, look, we're reinventing rental. It's going to be amazing. And they say, well, would you like to live in a rental for the rest of your life? And I just find that such a strange question because, you know, if it was a bit like this, then of course I would. But I think it's quite a generational thing that we've had such a long-standing um, idea that home ownership is the only option. You must have your own home separate to other people. Do not share any facilities. But I think what we're starting to see um, is that perhaps people are open to other options. No. Well, would you join me in thanking these three fantastic speakers? You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.